Good morning, uh, almost good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ho Yun Nam. I am a partner with the law firm Sword and Kissel, located in New York City. Um, I'm excited to be moderating this panel on this important topic, investing in shipping. After all, this is the reason why we're all here to understand where there's a need for capital in shipping and who's going to provide it. I'm joined by six distinguished panelists, in no particular order, David Barrow, Vice President of Marine and Offshore at Bureau Veritas, Michael Parker, Chairman of Global Shipping at Citi, Per Olaf Carlson, CEO of Cleves Securities, Konstantin Bach, CEO of MPC Container Ships, Erland Hauge, founder of Oceanis, Stefan Vetter, Vice President of Maritime Industries at KFW. Welcome, everyone. Perhaps we can start our discussion from a macroeconomic perspective. It's been about a month since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in the US, followed by Signature Bank and Credit Suisse. The global banking system appears to be still reeling from the aftermath of those bank failures. My humble opinion is that we have yet to see the full impact of uh, those, those events. So the first question to the panel is, has this been affecting or will it affect the ship finance market? Will the bank lenders, will the traditional bank lenders pull back a little at least for the time being? Stefan, let's start with you. Hello, no better. Thanks. Um, as a ship owner, I would be very relaxed here. Yeah. Um, four weeks ago, obviously the credit spreads went up from of the banks, and of course that had all some impacts on the refinancing cost for banks. But the uncertainty went away after the acquisition of credit spreads and also some liquidity measures from the central banks. And then actually the credit spreads came down again. Yeah. So, and also positive news is very much that European banks, so the major ship finance banks in the world, they're in pretty good shape actually. So their core capital ratios look good. And last year they had their best annual results for years. And probably this year will be even better for them because they should benefit from their higher interest rates. And at the same time, yeah, the balance sheets of the ship owners look also pretty good. Pretty stable, solid cash on the balance sheets. And thereby, the, the bank ratings for the ship owners are, look also better. So, and that helps the ship owners then to compete for financing with other industries, for example. And that's why I think we don't see any liquidity issues. Um, I can tell you here in APEC, there's a lot of competition still in the market for good, for good projects. Margins are, are pretty low these days. But now a little bit of bad news for you. Financing is more expensive than two years ago. Yeah? But that's not because of the uncertainty in the market with Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank. That's because the central banks are fighting inflation and increase the interest rates. Michael, how are, 
how are things for large institutions like City? Um, I, I agree with everything Stefan said. Um, large institutions, the regulators have made sure um, can sustain um, volatility, if you like. In fact, the big US institutions had a further 1% capital buffer thrust at them last year unexpectedly. I think, I mean, Credit Suisse is the only bank that is in shipping that was affected by events in the last few, uh, few weeks. Their strategy always was tying their shipping business to their wealth management business. And so UBS, as the new owner, is likely to <coughs> excuse me, take a <coughs> similar perspective. And so I don't think we'll see anything dramatic happen there. And as Stefan said, I mean, ship owners have been earning a lot of money. Banks have been repaid. The amount of debt outstanding to shipping has fallen in the last couple of years. So in that sense, the environment is very good. There are two things I would say there. One is stress in the banking system leads to boards of directors, risk committees, and others in banks, of course, taking a close look at everything they're doing. So what that tends to mean is that they look at activities they wouldn't necessarily regard as a priority if they're looking to either restrict capital or to conserve capital. So it's, it's, it's an indirect warning to an industry like shipping that if it's uh, not centered to that bank's activity, that the sort of volatility in banking can put something like that at risk. And I think, and we'll no doubt come to this later in this panel, it's what's going on behind the scenes in banking with the regulators that's going to have a much more dramatic impact on shipping finance in the next few years than anything that's gone on in the last few weeks. Arlen, if I may put you into an alternative lender category, does the turmoil in the banking system uh, perhaps open a door for private lenders and other alternative capital providers, um, given that those uh, financial institutions may not be so constrained by, by regulations? What are, what are your perspectives? Yeah, thank you. Um, just to explain a bit of the lens that I see this question through, I think that there are so many, so the forerunner to the turmoil is of course the inflation and the increasing interest rates coming from an environment that has been going on for so long with practically zero percent interest rates and then increasing it, you're disturbing a large complex system that has gotten used to something that we're now trying to go away from, namely free debt. And we have already seen uh, with the banking turmoil how fragile this system is and how it's um, causing issues that we did not foresee. So we're playing with a system that has been optimized for uh, very low interest rates. We have already seen that uh, this creates turmoil and the central bank's task of dealing with inflation has proven to be uh, challenging. I think we will see higher inflation or higher inflation than the inflation target for a longer time than what the central banks are guiding meaning that we don't necessarily have to see higher interest rates than what we currently see. We just need to see it also for longer because there are very big challenges of combating inflation. So 
I see a likelihood of just the uh, timeline of relatively high interest rates or higher than before being quite long or longer than the forward curve indicates. And this will all have in implications for the uh, financial institutions. So this turmoil that we're seeing, I don't think we will, this is only the beginning, it will go on. And it, was, it is difficult to see exactly how it will pan out. As a ship owner, I would not be that worried short term. We see eager financial institutions that, are, uh, that they have big budgets. They're unable to deliver on their budgets, but their eagerness to support ship owners is very big. You asked about alternative uh, lenders and whether they, this creates opportunities for them. This is a point we've made uh, from Oceanus before that this definitely creates good opportunities. Uh, alternative credit becomes vis-a-vis uh, -vis the traditional capital providers or the banks more competitive, uh, especially the ones that have raised capital in, a, in an environment with lower base rates. It now has suddenly relatively much cheaper capital, but also overall diversifying your sources of capital to me has never looked more important and like an easier task for ship owners. You have very eager lenders to work with, but you have a very um, uncertain future for quite a few financial institutions. Credit Suisse was deemed quite a um, solid partner, but uh, quite rapidly it became um, someone who needed to be bailed out. So this can happen in an environment that you're trying to disturb uh, as we do now with increasing interest rates. So we will get more surprises like this. So then having more lenders to work with is uh, something that every ship owner should look into in our opinion. Constantine, do you, as an owner, worry about the turmoil in the banking system? Should, should, should ship owners be worried about their liquidity positions? Um, I, I don't think so, and I can just echo what some of the, the fellow um, panelists here said. I think, in, in general, um, there's capital available. Uh, it's a question of cost uh, and of balance sheet strength, and I think that is, that is very important. Um, so there has been the ecosystem, I would say, of, of funding over the last 10, 15 years has evolved quite a bit. Post Lehman, uh, obviously we saw in inflation. I mean, there have been so many events that have created an ecosystem that is less dependent or less focused or centered around the traditional shipping banks. And therefore, I think uh, capital is available. The question is at what cost? Um, and obviously, the stronger your balance sheet, the better it is. I, I think going forward, obtaining project financing, i.e. non-corporate um, recourse financing, will be more challenging. Um, there will be funding available. It's a matter of what kind of risk you want to take and whether you want to you know, run a high risk on an acquisition with high leverage on a project finance, because then the cost will go up. Um, but I think in general, funding is available. Um, and for owners, it's probably actually good that, um, that the market is a bit more selective in, in choosing owners to finance, because we're not just in a cyclical shipping industry, which has been there for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but we're also in a certain part of the technology cycle. So people have to answer a lot of uh, questions around the right decision, 
on future propulsion. Uh, so to place your bets and to take decisions if it's not supported by very cheap debt, I think that's actually favorable for the industry in total. Let's talk about interest rate for a bit. There's a big debate in the U.S. right now whether the Fed's going to raise rates again next month or whether we're done, at least for now. Um, has the high interest rate affected the availability of capital in shipping at all? Um, or will it affect if the rates remain high? Uh, per Olaf, uh, an investment banker's perspective, does high interest rate uh, affect your ability to arrange deals? Uh, I think in, uh, it, it's obvious in general that uh, the higher the cost of uh, money, the, you know, the more challenging it's, uh, it will be to uh, execute transactions. Uh, however, if you look at the cost of bank uh, funding over the last 20 years, uh, it has fluctuated between 6 and 8 percent, irrespective of um, the times. Because if we go back uh, before the low LIBOR, the LIBORs were running at 5 percent. And the margins were anything from 50 bips for a solid uh, company to uh, 200, 250 bips for project finance. So in essence, the cost of funding has sort of fluctuated, I would say in general, between uh, 6 and 8 percent, which, which is where we are also today on the bank financing. I think more challenging is the fact uh, that the availability of bank findings is less than what we saw uh, 10 years ago. As a consequence of the uh, shipping collapse we uh, saw after 2010, um, several banks have uh, pulled out of the market, Bank of Scotland, RBS, uh, Norwegian banks have uh, scaled down, German banks, have uh, several of them have disappeared. So it, it's more availability uh, to get finance and what we're seeing is that whereas you could get maybe 70-80% bank debt, mortgage debt in the past, uh, uh, we're now talking 50 to 60 percent. And that has to be replaced by something else, i.e. alternative finance, and that's where, you know, Oceanis comes in, we comes in, in, uh, in various ways. We actually took the initiative to establish a new ship mortgage bank in Norway back in 2012 and, uh, and as, uh, was uh, part of the founding father groups of Maritime and Merchant Bank just because of this, uh, for this reason. These days we are, um, we, we are, we find it harder to do project finance right now because it is a tur uh, turbulent times. Uh, people are also, uh, some people are uncertain about the directions. What we have been doing lately is we have set up fund structures in the different concept, more uh, of hedge fund, uh, hedge fund strategies instead of the typical KS fund uh, 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 structures that we had. So now we have set up a hedge fund in Ireland. Uh, there's a little fact sheet outside for those who have an interest. I would, uh, that's for my promotion today. <laughs> uh, which, have, um, uh, which is based uh, thoroughly on our research, which is among the best in the world at the moment. Uh, that's not us saying, that's Bloomberg uh, uh, ranking us. Um, and we are, uh, we, we are trying now to focus investor capital towards 
a, uh, towards shipping fund, which has a much higher level of investor flexibility than uh, the traditional direct finance. So, um, uh, and we, we alter between going into tankers, LPG vessels, LNG tankers, bulk carriers, at any given point in time, although we do have risk management policies that limits us from going in one sector. If we'd only invested in tankers last summer, we would have had a tremendous return. We have still had, by end of February, a 40% return in the first eight months of the fund, which gives us a CAGR of uh, you know, 60% or something, if it continues, although we've had a slight setback uh, in, in March and uh, April following the bank turmoil and following the OPEC reduction uh, in the oil, so the, uh, in, in the production. So the point is it's, more, it's a more complicated build, uh, uh, picture than just the interest rate. If you add on uh, to the interest uh, element all the things we've heard today, which fuel are we going to run on? What are the main engines going to be like? Do I invest in a vessel where I need to change the main engine at some point in time? You know, what are we going to do? There's a lot of new challenges that comes into the whole picture. That's why we're saying, you know, like John Maynard Keynes said, look at the short term. In the long term, we'll all be dead. Invest in basically in listed shares that are in existence where you can go in and out and, and live with the terms of today. Um, it's great. All the technological developments we see are necessary. Um, I agree with the, one of the one of the people earlier today who said that we have a great um, uh, faith in the human uh, race's ability to reinvent and invent. Um, I think we need something really radical to happen on the techno technological side compared to these marginal changes where we're adjusting things here and there and everywhere. It's got to be something very different in the, in the future. Somebody has to come up with a different solution on the carbon emission side. Hydrogen could be a great fuel, but not at the moment. The energy efficiency is one to four, so you're spending, if you want to have clean hydrogen, you're, you're spending four units or energy equivalents for one uh, energy uh, unit of hydrogen. So why use hydropower in Norway to produce hydrogen when you're using four times as much as what you're delivering? So it, it, hydrogen is, is a fantasy at the moment. It's, it's a bit of a phantom uh, phenomenon. Uh, unless you can use uh, energy that cannot be applied elsewhere. Um, so, so as I said, uh, I'll make that short or uh, stop now, but it's more than the interest rate here, which makes it difficult to find money. There's much more money still available for things that are listed, and that I think we're going to see an, a, a, an uptick in that over the next couple of years. Anyway, leave it at that. Thank you. Yeah. Let's zoom in a bit to the core of our topic um, and talk about what assets are being financed in the current market. David, I, I know you come from a slightly different background. Tell us a little bit about what you're focused on and where you're seeing activities. Yeah, sure, thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. So I think our industry is full of challenges. Um, the challenges we have today on geopolitics, high inflation and high interest rates makes it even more challenging for us. 
but we have to keep on with our drive through to decarbonisation. People often say to me, you know, are we moving ahead quick enough as, a, as an industry? A few months ago, I was preparing a presentation on alternative fuels. And I remember that I did one in Istanbul 12 years ago. So I pulled the slides out and they show, I showed them to my decarbonisation director at Bureau Veritas. I said, can I still use these? He says, yes, you can. Absolutely. So little had changed. I think we're moving a lot quicker for sure. I think if we look back at COP26 in Glasgow, then we've made a, uh, some, some really good progress there. And that was followed at COP27 um, in, in Egypt last year. I know what we need to do is make sure we carry that momentum as an industry going to COP28 in uh, Dubai for absolute sure. MEPC 80 in June is going to be critical, as a number have said to us today, and that's going to be absolutely critical. But from, from my aspect, we, we have five pillars that we need to work together as an industry. It doesn't matter what sector of the industry you're in. Finance, shipbuilding, operating, building. There's five, and actually, I've added another one today, number six. Um, but I'll come on to that in a minute. The first one is technology. You can't, you can't divide um, decarbonisation, data and digital and innovation, for absolute sure. They have to work in tandem. And you have to look short-term and long-term as well. At the Decarbonisation Centre BV have here in Singapore, we've pulled together the innovation piece to make sure we're working together as well. We don't see enough owners today looking at how they can reduce their emissions today through efficiencies. You know, we've worked through a number of owners who reduce the, the, their emissions hugely by looking at today's uh, technology and how they can get more efficient on operations as well. So technology has to be uh, two uh, now and for the future as well. We've talked about policy today. I think we're all in agreement the IMO have to move faster for absolute sure. There's no question on that they have to move faster. But if we had other regulators like the MPA, for example, who had that forward-looking vision, then we'll be in a much, much better place globally. And I applaud the MPA for the approach they take. We've been talking about finance um, on, on this panel and before as well. You know, more challenges, higher interest rates, inflation, that should not stop us on the drive towards the 2050 targets. If it does, we'll just stop, that's for sure. The other one is the social aspects. We have more stakeholders to deal with as we bring new fuels in as well. You know, we look at ammonia, we know what the risks are for ammonia as well. I now start to see the question of nuclear being discussed. I know there's, uh, we're, we're involved in a, a pilot project off in Indonesia for a floating installation using nuclear as fuel. Once we start talking about nuclear, we have a whole new array of stakeholders that we will need to address as well. And of course, collaboration. Those who have heard me speak before, it's my favorite word, but I think it's most essential. Collaboration, collaboration, and collaboration. It's really important. No one organization can do it by themselves. And it's collaboration from all aspects, from the finance side, you know, right across to designers, classification societies, all working together in collaboration. And the final one, which I added today to my five pillars, the sixth pillar, is people. Um, I think Mark O'Neill uh, talked about it and summed it up this morning. How do we attract talent to our industry? You know, youngsters have often seen our industry as a dirty industry um, that is not appealing to them. Now we have our opportunity. You know, driving forward towards decarbonisation 
This is our opportunity to attract young people. I think as an industry, we've failed in making it an, an attractive uh, career. I want to wait to see, I'm a master mariner, and my father was mortified, he was an engineer, when I left the sea, when I got my master's ticket. And we don't promote that enough. We don't promote that when you become a master or a chief engineer, you haven't reached your pinnacle. There's so much more you can carry on in that industry. And we need to attract youngsters to industry and retain them as well. We need that new talent and we need to, to drive it forward. And I think that's a responsibility of everyone. So are we moving forward quick enough? I think so. We need to quicken the pace up. We need to work in a collaborative way and we need to be completely engaged. Stefan, you and I talked a bit, bit about uh, the issue of the uh, talent in shipping um, before the conference. Um, can capital providers help solve this urgent problem? Do you have a perspective on this issue? Yeah, I think first of all, we have to analyze what the young people are looking for. Yeah? And I think when I talk to young people in Europe or in Asia, it's very much they want to make an impact with their job. Yeah? So we have to provide them jobs and offers where they really can help also like to, to tackle these this topics like decarbonization as well or digitalization, which is super important for, for the shipping industry. And at the same time, I think we have to attract them via several measures. Yeah? I mean, young people are very much on social media, so we should also promote shipping a little bit more on social media to show them how cool it is, how many opportunities are in shipping, and, and then I'm thinking also a little bit of, yeah, maybe some creative campaigns from, from ship owners, like work on travel on ships. Yeah? It's maybe something you to, to create an emotional link with the shipping industry. And there, I think the shipping industry has better opportunities than other industries. Constantin, I, I know we're a bit off topic here, but uh, I, I, I imagine you, you deal with sort of the issue of talent, um, lack of uh, labor shortage. Um, how, do you have any perspective on this issue? I think uh, Stefan already mentioned a few, a few important topics. I think in, in, in general, the image of shipping um, has to change, is changing. We are also in transition as far as you know, the, the efforts of the industry is concerned. And I think that, to Stefan's point, is, is very important that you know, people see shipping as a as what it is, exciting, dynamic, uh, high adaptability, and it's still being seen as a bit of an old-fashioned industry, but uh, it is not. I think for, for, for us, and, and that's maybe very specifically, I mean, we have, uh, we have hired all kinds of different people over the years, I mean, from, from a chemist over, you know, data scientists, so you, you have to um, basically attain completely different talent, and I think you can only do that if you change yourself. Um, and, and we, for example, we, are, we invested in a, in a synthetic fuel startup. We are engaged in the um, Merce McKinney Center of Zero Carbon Shipping where we have seconded people. I think you need to also spread out, um, make contact with other people, um, and also show that you, you are not just an old-fashioned uh, shipping company, but you, you really um, you know, behave differently, act differently, interact with different people, and promote shipping um, as an industry. And also attract more women in shipping, I would say. It's also important. Yeah, and Singapore is really a role model with a lot of smart, strong women. And I think uh, it's, it's one of the, I think, 
advantages of Singapore as a maritime hub, and that's why Singapore is also successful. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree on that. You know, if we, we spend a lot of time going right down to the grassroots stage, going around to the schools in Singapore, telling the youngsters about shipping. You know, if I recollect when I, I lived in Greece for four years, and when we moved there, my daughter was 14, right? And when she was in school in the UK, and her friends used to say, what does your father do? Oh, he's in shipping. Well, what's that? Right? Of course, when we went to Greece, everyone knew about it. And again, you know, in Greece, it was going down to the grassroots, to the very, very young people at school. And I think that's what we need to do. We, we, we need to engage them at those early stages to get them interested and to show how exciting the industry is. Thank you. Um, getting back to sort of the original question of where the next investment opportunities will come from, um, coming to you, Michael, uh, where are you seeing activities? Where are you, where are you seeing uh, new opportunities? Well, I, I think the biggest opportunities are really in retrofitting. I think Stamatis was very honest up here on a previous panel. If you're a dry bulk owner, it's difficult to know what to do at the moment. If you're in the container space, you are being pushed by the cargo owners. We didn't hear as much about cargo owners this morning as I expected. The cargo owners are driving in the container sector are going to drive the pace of this because the, the end consumer is dictating um, really what they want as consumers. So what's happening, and this is what is going to impact finance, is the, is the regulators, and this isn't just the regulated sector, so to my fellow panelists in the unregulated sector, this is coming to you at some point soon too, which is everything we do is going to be measured by regulators in terms of environmental impact. So for regulated banks, the ECB, the Federal Reserve, PRA, have all put in climate risk and the impact uh, of climate risk on banks very high on their list and they're asking the sort of questions that um, have never really been asked before frankly. It's like another wave of compliance after the financial crisis but this isn't a one-off. This is going to be permanent to what are you doing not you know broadly across the ESG. So what that will mean is that we will all be measured by emissions and scope three depending upon what you do. And so that will mean that the best thing to invest in will be those things that really move technology forward. But we know that the chances of getting there quickly, of course, are, are low in terms of zero emission fuels. We know that's going to take time. So therefore, everything you can do around reducing emissions through retrofitting, and we heard that from one of the previous panels, that I think is where the money will go. The other thing is the age of ships does not matter. Now, ratings will matter. At a panel in New York, uh, someone from Vessels Value showed already what they're looking at, the impact of CII before ratings are actually published on the value of ships. So that, that will be impacted not because of the age, but because of the retrofitting that takes place, and that will attract the cargo. If the cargo is on the ship, you'll get finance. This means that second-hand vessel financing becomes difficult unless you're financing retrofitting. One of the big issues around new buildings, and I think the Ukraine situation has helped in terms of LNG, obviously. Um, one of the big issues is you don't want to finance a single-fuel single new building because then it's more likely to become a stranded asset. 
So if it's dual-fueled, including LNG, from a financing perspective, I think that's a, a good thing to do. There's plenty of competition between banks, even in a shrinking bank market. But in a way, what's good is that the, the, the quality of um, risk in shipping is good at the moment, which means that we're not attracting the attention of central banks or regulators as we used to. And we're therefore ready, if you like, with capital to deploy it to the new technologies in which I include retrofitting. And the significant reductions in emissions available to the existing fleet from these technologies means ship owners will have no choice. And that includes wind, where wind is a suitable technology, because everything is going to be measured in emissions and very, very soon, whether it is, I'll do my advertising here, the Poseidon principles, whether you're a member of that or not, simply because it's the cargo. The cargo owner is going to be measured. And so um, anything that is, anything is financeable that is going in that direction. If it's not going in that direction, it becomes difficult to finance. And a lot of owners recognize this, and they're able to not refinance because they've made a lot of money in the last two or three years. And so that's providing them with capital to do things. What's amazing to me, and I remember being in this room, I can't remember if it's four or five years ago, I've listened to things this morning that no one was really talking about five years ago. And that, that's a sign of the progress we've made, and I think partly accelerated by COVID. What's also great is to hear the enthusiasm of people like Espen, who's been around even longer than I have, and people like Arlie Sterling, who are inventing new businesses based upon the changes taking place in this industry. So it's challenging, but this industry has huge opportunities. And so financing that huge opportunity is going to be exciting for all of us. Constantine, it's been an exciting journey for the container ship sector, to say the least. And MPC itself has had some great success. I know many large ship owners are flush with cash. Um, where are you seeing opportunities? Well, we have uh, used the cash that we have been able to generate to, to uh, basically give some benefits back to our shareholders, uh, pay significant dividends. I think a market like this is a market where you also have to return capital to your investors. Um, secondly, we have uh, used the, the, the liquidity flowing in to deleverage significantly. I think, uh, as I said earlier, we are in uncertain times for, for, from various angles, um, be it technology, uh, be it the macroeconomic and geopolitical environment. So I think operating on a low leverage basis is, is important. Yet, um, there are opportunities. And I, I think one word I have heard on, on all the panels so far is collaboration. Uh, and I think that is very important. And that is also something that, that at least we, we believe going forward will be key and taken investment decisions. We, for example, have, have been the first container ship tonnage provider that has ordered uh, dual fuel methanol vessels against a 15-year time charter backed by a COA of 15 years, which is completely unusual for, for container shipping, um, to establish the first uh, green corridor um, in Northern Europe, um, hopefully by the end of 2024. I think that's, that's the type of investments with collaboration where you can really make a difference. Um, in the meantime, that doesn't mean you shouldn't buy and sell second-hand ships. That is uh, the day-to-day -day business as well. Optimize the fleet. We have joint investment uh, plans with some of our charter customers um, on numerous uh, vessels in our fleet where we optimize, therefore, also the um, consumption and emissions. 
And I think this is where, where I, going forward, see um, opportunities. But again, the key word is collaboration between the different stakeholders, and that is extremely important, but will also provide for in interesting investment opportunities going forward. There's been something of a resurgence in the oil and gas and offshore sector. Um, I personally have been busy uh, working on matters coming out of the sector. Does ESG still play a role, especially whom to lend money? Stefan, you have a view? Absolutely. <laughs> There's no way back for that. Uh, I think the, the banks make a strong commitment also to support the decarbonization of the industry. And that's also because the ship owners are pursuing the decarbonization of, of the maritime industry. And also their clients are looking for efficient transport of their goods yeah, and to lower also the carbon footprint in their supply chains. And as a bank, you definitely need to follow your clients. Yeah? You need to check and to get an understanding of what they are looking for. And that's why we're also very happy that more and more ship owners tap the sustainable financing um, instruments. And we are very happy to, to support them. And I think it will only, yeah, shipping and ship finance will include ESG, KPIs uh, going forward. Hey, Olaf, what do you hear from your investors? Is ESG a factor in the deals you arrange? It's a um, tapestry of a, uh, of a universe, actually. Um, most of the, the, the people that are operating in the day-to-day -day stock market is not that focused on it in their daily trading. Um, we do see that the, the private equity companies, institutionals, uh, if, you, if you ask them to uh, participate in an in uh, establishing a new company IPO, like we were involved in the Himalaya uh, case, um, they are certainly looking for green investments. They have uh, pockets that are to be used for green investments. So there is a lot of availability of funds that are searching for green investments, and they can be applied also in the maritime sector, for sure. Um, but I would say, at the moment, the investors follows the ship owners, and they will um, uh, they will look at what they are doing. They feel it's their obligation, really. But of course, there are people who are saying we're not uh, going into bulk carriers that are carrying coal. Um, there are, uh, or in general, you have certain investors doing that. But on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we see it now on, uh, for example, on um, uh, a similar cases. Will you buy shares in a company that have been seen transporting Russian oil? Um, we have had to take a stance on some cases where we do not buy shares in companies that have been identified as transporting uh, before it was sanctioned. Um, simply because we, you know, we didn't want to fall into that trap. So there are there are elements that investors are uh, looking at, the socially uh, conscious investors. So, Orland, uh, do you have a view on the role of ESG in uh, investment decision making process? 
Yeah, happy to pitch on, on that. ESG, I, sometimes I feel it's a bit of a misunderstood concept in the lens of lenders and financial institutions where from the outside it is it has this perception. Yes, it's repeated a lot. The financial institutions, they love to talk about ESG, but it w will always be secondary to traditional credit analysis. The business cases, they have to work in isolation. And then it's, a, it's an extra appeal if it ticks the ESG boxes. Sometimes it, it, one can get the impression that as long as you tick the ESG boxes, you can be more lenient on the typical credit analysis or the other um, analysis of the business case in and of itself. And I think that is a bit of a misunderstanding that is uh, okay to be corrected sometimes. I think Constantine and uh, people who has been working on the ship owning side presenting these type of opportunities that obviously take a lot of the ESG boxes. It is still, it has to make commercial sense and it has to present a good uh, credit case in and of itself. So um, one shouldn't think that the ESG uh, angle is a free ride to getting good commercial terms. It has to make sense on standalone basis as well. On oil and gas investments, um, I very much support uh, a bit of a le more lenient uh, view on the oil and gas industry as a whole, also from the financial institutions. Following the crisis in the OSV segment and for the uh, supply industry to oil and gas exploration and production, there has gotten so much, uh, it's almost a taboo word to uh, finance uh, oil and gas. And we see now that the most dynamic financial institutions, they are again looking into this and uh, thinking about supporting uh, further investments in this industry. And I don't think any of us is, is benefiting from a world where we don't invest in oil and gas. So this uh, cyclical underinvestment in oil and gas is extremely harmful to the world overall, I believe. It is an very strong inflation driver and we are dependent on oil and gas in uh, many decades to come. Uh, we should, on, from an ESG, overall ESG perspective, we should be very impatient with action, but we should be very patient with results. We shouldn't think that we can uh, grow independent from oil and gas um, coming any decade soon. Uh, so to politically drive an underinvestment in oil and gas will only lead to more volatility and uh, highly misallocations of capital, which I don't think uh, anyone benefits from. This will completely remove the political sentiment because it will reduce living standards and you will lose really the traction of pulling it through with the agenda that, we're, uh, that we want to accomplish. So we see now some financial institutions coming back into the OSV game. We believe this is a new upturn for uh, the OSV segment and we would then encourage also other financial institutions to not sabotage or not uh, think that it is uh, detrimental to the overall ESG agenda to also cooperate with oil and gas uh, industry. Believe it or not, our time is coming to an end. Um, I think that's about it. I, I uh, thank you to the panel and thank you to the audience. Uh, enjoy the rest of the conference.